Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 1st, 2023. Happy June to everyone. Uh, last August, uh, we did an interesting show with a guest called Elliot Ackerman, uh, on the U.S. retreat from Afghanistan, which was a, a giant cock-up or F-up, depending on how you put it, part of a classic five-part tragedy. The book is called The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. Uh, Elliot Ackerman's a remarkable man, a very successful writer of both nonfiction and fiction, uh, as well as a Marine veteran who served five tours of duty. Uh, some of you will be familiar with some of his fictional works, including 2034 and Green on Blue and Waiting for Eden. And Elliot Ackerman is back as a fiction writer, as uh, an author of novels. He has a new book out, Halcyon. Very interesting new book. And I'm thrilled that he's joining us from... Washington, D.C. Uh, Elliot, uh, is your attempt to write fiction in contrast with your work as a nonfiction writer and indeed as a former soldier, is it an attempt to make history what you want it to be? That's part of the subject I know of Halcyon, but is it your attempt to, so to speak, massage history? Well, I think uh, what you can do in fiction is you can engage with, you know, not necessarily what did happen, but what uh, should have happened and uh, also what could have happened. And so, you know, Halcyon is a, a book that uh, is set in an alternate history, although it's relatively uh, contemporary. It's set in an alternate 2004 and uh, it deals uh, with subjects uh, that are controversial now, subjects like uh, what to do about Confederate monuments in American society and subjects like uh, Me Too. Um, so the, the novel really is a reexamination of our own history, but just from a slightly alternate perspective. Yeah, it's sort of doubly counterintuitive in the sense that um, you go back to the gore, Clinton and Bush years, but in a very, very intriguing way. Explain what you do with Al Gore, of all people, making him the central figure in a in a in an imaginary history. You know, well, you know, the novel's not a straight political book, but it takes place in a world that has been uh, just sort of slightly altered. So, you know, the year two thousand was obviously a real crossroads in America, and I I, I would think most would have wondered at one point or another, you know, what would have the trajectory of the country had been had Gore uh, defeated Bush. And so in my imagined 2004, which takes it four years uh, later, we see that uh, there's been four years of Gore, of Gore presidency. And one of the things Gore has changed is he's gone full speed ahead into uh, research into the human genome, which is something that actually George Bush shut off right after he became president. And in my imagined 2004, there's been a significant breakthrough in uh, the study of what's called cryonics. And it's actually the ability to bring people back. And so 
in Halcyon, we see the in the opening of the novel, we meet one of these people. Right. The opening of the book back. is uh, I love the first sentence um, and I'm going to read it out. News of the great discovery trickled out. Resurrection, new life had become a scientific possibility. And then you say the story ran below the fold in the Richmond Times dispatch on an unseasonably cold Sunday in April. I bet you worked hard on that opening, Elliot. It didn't come in, a, in an hour. No, you always got to work hard on your opening. It's important. But um, and, you know, even that, that it's that it's b- below the fold in the Richmond Times. Yeah, so there's a certain sort it. of, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, humor to it, if that's a, the right way of putting it. Well, and, Irony, we're to a, and we're gesturing to a different time. I don't think many people read their news below the fold of anything these days. You know, we mostly read it on our phone or on some type of a screen. Yeah, and what I like about one of the things I, I love the book, one of the things I like about the book is this return to Gore. He's become such a an unfashionable figure. He was always rather unfashionable, but he's particularly unfashionable these days, maybe because of our obsession with Donald Trump. Um, it was also, this is an important period because it was before the internet really exploded, exploded and technology became central to our lives. And yet the book itself is rethinking technology, cryonics, as you say, this invention of the avoidance of death. Why did you choose that? You know, the, the, the science around the book, you know, allows uh, me and allows the reader to kind of enter this, um, this parallel world. Um, and in that world, the central figure is, is this gentleman named Robert Abelson. And he is a man who uh, was venerated in his own time. He's a hero of the Second World War, a renowned litigator who worked on progressive causes. And he's one of these people who's been brought back. But what he quickly learns in this new, in this new world that he's living in is that his values have not kept pace with the values of society around him. And we see in the book how he struggles to, to keep up um, with society around controversial issues um, that I already mentioned. Uh, your book comes with a quote from Chekhov at the beginning. And what does it mean, dying? Uh, that's just the quote, and then Chekhov goes on in the cherry orchard. Perhaps man has a hundred senses, and only the five we know are lost at death, while the other 95 remain alive. Do Americans in particular, uh, Elliot, have problems with the idea of dying? I think we have sometimes we have problems with uh, with time. And I think time is certainly adjacent with dying. And we believe uh, that there's only one time and that is the present and that the present is fixed, um, that all values are fixed, that all morality is fixed. And we have difficulty realizing that that nothing is fixed, um, that what was fashionable today will become unfashionable tomorrow. And what feels right today might very well feel quite wrong tomorrow. And so the novel is about how time features uh, and has a relationship with morality and how we how we judge one another and how history judges us. Earlier today, we did a show with Andrew Krivak, another distinguished American novelist. And he talks about stories as a way of, if not denying death, certainly avoiding time. Is the act of storytelling one way of putting off death or doing away with death um resurrection in a sense and is what you what you're doing in this book halcyon um a more literary form of resurrection 
Well, you know, the, the, the genesis of this book um, comes out of my own, my own family. So my wife's mother and father had a very significant age difference. Uh, and he was a World War II veteran. I actually never met him. He passed away in 2008. And uh, their age difference was 25 years. What, what, what was his name? I think you mentioned it last time we talked. Um, his, na- his name was uh, Ned Carpenter, and the book is dedicated to him. Um, but uh, he is someone who's just beloved in their family and beloved in his community. And particularly in recent years, um, as we've been going through, you know, a succession of crises, whether it's, you know, the pandemic to social upheavals in America, to the war in Ukraine, a refrain in her family is frequently, you know, what do you think daddy would think about X? What do you think daddy would think about Y? And people speak about him as though he is very much there. And so, you know, that in many ways got me onto this idea of, you know, what if I could imagine a world that he could walk through and we could see how, you know, someone like him would have to answer these questions and make sense of the world around them. And to, to your comments before, I think one of the ways we do make sense of our chaotic world and give it a shape and give it order is through stories. You know, we tell ourselves stories about the world around us to make sense of it. How different is the world of 2004 that you describe in this book from the world of 2023 or 2024? It's a world dominated by rage. No one trusts anyone. I think early in the book, I, I, I categorized the national movement as, uh, as one of rage on we. Um, we're sort of, you know, facilitating between not caring and sort of a low-grade nihilism and being completely and totally energized with uh, emotion that, uh, yes, that borders into rage. So I think the mood of the country is, uh, is quite similar to the mood of the country right now, but the, the events that exist um, you know, are, are slightly few. Um, you know, and a, a friend of mine who recently read the, read the novel uh, made the point to me um, that he loved the fact that, uh, as you read in the opening, that uh, we, you know, we've, just, we've figured out that we've conquered death and that resurrection is a scientific possibility, yet everybody just seems to go about their lives as though not much has changed. And um, I think that's sort of how we would, as a society, cope with something as revolutionary as resurrection, because if we look at all of the challenges that are existing today or all the innovations, like, for instance, right now, right, we're all learning that artificial intelligence is going to right. uh, take over half of the jobs on the planet. And, you know, there's not much we can do about it. And life just sort of goes on. Uh, and I think life has an amazing ability to just carry on despite all of the social upheavals and changes around us. Yeah, I was thinking of that, actually. And I was going to bring up AI, which always comes up every, in every conversation these days. Uh, Stephen Marsh, another Good novelist has a new book out, which he uses AI. He was on the show a couple of weeks ago. And had we said to someone a few years ago, uh, Elliot, oh, we're going to invent this technology that replicates human speech and we won't have to write or think anymore, you'd think I was insane. Uh, So in a way, um, you're playing around with the science of resurrection. Isn't that absurd, is it? No, whereas I think, you know, one AI is, you know, creating a, a form of intelligence or a form of life um, from nothing uh, in Halcyon, what we're playing with is uh, bringing back life from nothing and having old forms of life and in many respects attended to that life, old ideas become resurrected and seeing what happens when these old ideas and old ways of being 
are forced to try to integrate into the world um, as we know it now. So that's definitely a, a theme of the book. Could we do with bringing back World War II heroes? Uh, I think the the guy you bring back or brought back uh, fought in the Battle of Saipan, um, which was one of the more heroic battles in the Second World War. Do you think this would be a good thing? Well, I think what you would find, and what you find in Halcyon, and what uh, and with with Abelson, the uh, the protagonist who's brought back, is that. Um, the nostalgia we often attach to these individuals quickly vanishes when it's held up to the, the stark light of the present. Um, and these people who have been venerated are now, you know, somewhat harshly judged. Yeah. And of course the reverse is true. Um, Clinton features in this story too. How does he come out of it? He was a rather disgraceful man, disgraced in office and out of office. Uh, What's his role in all this? Well, in the opening of the book, we know we very quickly see that um, the reason Al Gore becomes president is that, uh, you know, in history, as it actually unfolded, you know, Clinton was never convicted. He was impeached, but not convicted. Um, in the world of Halcyon, Clinton was uh, convicted when tapes, audio recordings, like what Nixon did, were found in the White House. And when those tapes leaked out, there was so much indignation that he was convicted in 1999. That allowed Al Gore to be the incumbent president when he ran in 2000. And with the advantages of an incumbent president, he's able to just edge out George W. Bush and become president in the year 2000. So um, Clinton plays a pretty significant political role in kind of the background of the novel in sort of creating that world that, yes, is different than the America we know today, um, but only slightly different. And I think there are a number of moments, I hope, um, in the reader experiences as, uh, you know, there before the grace of God go I, how different the world could have potentially been. And to your credit, uh, Elliot, you don't put Donald Trump in. If anything, I guess Clinton is the Trumpian figure in the novel. Is that fair? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put the, you know, I, I wouldn't all of the emotional weight that we put into, you know, our, our emotions uh, around Trump onto Clinton. And he's, I don't cast him necessarily as a, as a villain per se. Um, but I think, uh, you know, to create this world, Clinton sort of has to have his conviction in 1999. And by the time the book ends, we're sort of getting into its gesturing towards what are now contemporary American politics. But, you know, I, I didn't want to write a book that was a scree about America today. Uh, I think we certainly have plenty of that in our culture. You know, too I think much, too, much, on, of too much of it. I agree. Yeah. Too much. And that's why going back to Gore and Clinton and Bush, I think, is, is, is so... Um, invigorating we did a show a year or two ago with a, another very good writer connor Towno o'neill he has a, he had a new book out down with all that devil's bones uh, about monuments memory and the legacy of white supremacy and about whether we should pull the the statues down of of confederate generals um were you making a point in this about that argument? Were you suggesting we should or shouldn't pull these statues down? Or was it simply for you as a, as a soldier an interesting subject? I think it was more the latter. It's an, I think it's an interesting subject, and it's one that when we engage on it, I think it tells you a lot about our character and the complexities that, um, that are American life. So... Um, and I think in the novel, you'll see each of the characters have different points of view on issues like Confederate monuments. And um, 
you know, when each of them step onto the page, hopefully if I've done my job, they're able to make their case to the reader as though they're making their case before God. But if you look at American history, I mean, you know, there, you know, these issues are complicated. I think it's, you know, in a, in a public square, it's, you know, yes, it's relatively straightforward. You know, if, if the people um, in Richmond or in New Orleans don't want Robert E. Lee to be in the public square and decide they want to tear down that monument, I think that's that, you know, that's very straightforward. But it gets more complicated when you talk about places like, for instance, Arlington National Cemetery. I think most Americans don't realize that Arlington National Cemetery, which is actually built on the grounds of Robert E. Lee's pre-Civil War home, what was called Custis House, um, that there are 482 Confederate soldiers buried in Arlington National Cemetery. You know, and there's a Confederate monument at Arlington National Cemetery today as we speak. You know, so should we dig up the bodies of those soldiers and put them somewhere else or tear down that monument? You know, when you start asking those questions, you know, it gets more complex and the, the controversy in Halcyon specifically has to do with um, what's called the Virginia Monument, which is a monument of Robert E. Lee on the battlefield at Gettysburg um, that is there to this day. And in the novel, I'd play around whether or not that monument does, in fact, get torn down. And so oftentimes, I think the, the controversy around Civil War monuments breaks down into two lines. The monuments that are built in places that are for the living, like the town square, which seems very straightforward that you would want to tear those, you know, get rid of those if that's what that community wants. Um, but then the monuments that exist in places that are for the dead and by places that are for the dead, I mean, battlefields, cemeteries, those places exist for the dead. And how do we treat those spaces? And what are the dangers of, for lack of a better term, digging up the dead, whether they be dead people or dead ideas, because oftentimes when you, you dig up the dead, they start walking around amongst the living. Um, and that's yeah, certainly that's a nice, happening like, in Halcyon. That's a nice way of putting it. Next, uh, in, in July, I'm going to Gettysburg for the Braver Angels Convention. They're holding they're the sort of third-party group who, who want to bring left and right together in America, and I guess they're using Gettysburg as a symbol. But for you, from what you just said, that might be a warning. We should be careful about digging up the dead, Elliot. Are you suggesting that? Well, symbolically it's, it's, or otherwise. Symbolically or otherwise. Um, in, in oftentimes for political reasons, people will reach back and excavate parts of our history to, uh, to excite people's emotions. Well, that, that's what that, you're doing in the book, too. I mean, we can't avoid that's an unavoidable thing as a writer, isn't it? It's an un, no, it's an unavoidable thing. It's certainly an unavoidable thing as a writer, but it's important to know that, you know, when we go back to these old wounds, the emotion around them. Um, still exist. And that's something that exists in America. I mean, look, and you can look overseas, we can look to even this, the war in Ukraine, you know, the war in Ukraine, if you if you listen to the Russians, the arguments they're making are historical arguments about, you know, their version of history, and why that means Ukraine should be part of Russia. So this is something that just we as human beings do is we, we, we look back and make meaning out of our history. And that's, you know, the story and Halcyon deals with the process of how we look at history, and how we and how we judge those who've come before us. Yeah, and you write about that in an interesting piece in The Atlantic from a week or two ago, Notes from a Cemetery, about um, Veterans Day and Memorial Day and our memories of the past. I wonder, Elliot, and I'm guessing because I've never been in the military, certainly not on the front lines, whether you have to struggle sometimes not to write as a former soldier. Well, I think the reality is, is that, you know, anytime, any, let me, anytime I pick up a book, I often know who the author is. And when I'm reading that book, I will uh, assume 
that uh, the author, uh, the author's experience informs the book. So um, I would say had I not been a former soldier, uh, Halcyon might be read differently, uh, as with, you know, a number of my books. Um, but because I am a former soldier, we will pick that up and probably start to read some of my experience into it. And that's, uh, and that's just fine, you know, because that's what I do as well. Um, but, you know, the, the themes that I'm examining in this, um, you know, yes, they have a military angle, but, but most centrally, the, the theme of the book is about how we, how we judge one another. Um, and what it means to tell stories and what it means to create history. And in a way, I'm guessing that coming back to America from a foreign war, particularly one as distant and misunderstood as Afghanistan, is also a form of resurrection, isn't it? You come back and you weren't alive, again, symbolically when you were there, and then you come back and you're seeing a new country, and you're seen in a new way. Is, is, is there a resurrectionary quality to being a soldier in the contemporary American army? Well, I think, listen, I think there certainly is. Um, you know, one thing that uh, was often, you know, has often said to me by like very well-meaning people, um, who is this idea of saying, you know, to a soldier is, you know, I can't imagine what you went through over there. And you know, my response has always been, you know, yeah, sure you can. You can imagine what I went through over there. Now, you can imagine, a person can imagine what it's like, you know, to lose someone who's very close to them, you know, to be involved in something that's terrifying or violent. And those are all things we experience in other facets of my life. And I, when I came back, always wanted people to try to do that type of imaginative work. Because if a person can't imagine what I went through in a war or what anyone else went through in a war, that means that that person who went to war is... Um, forever changed in some unrecognizable way to the people who they left when they went to war. So it means the person I was before, I am now completely, I am unrecognizable to that person because I've had this unimaginable experience. And if that's the case, that means I never get to return to being the person I was before I went to war. And that means I never really get to go home. So I think that as we tell stories, you know, as people start to imagine the unimaginable, you know, that allows a form of resurrection for the soldiers. And that resurrection is, yes, it's a, it's a form of homecoming. And, um, and again, you know, at Halcyon is much of it that the name Halcyon that um, is the title of the book is the title of Robert Abelson's home. Uh, the, yeah, it's the, a great the song. Yeah, I, I'm surprised more people haven't named their books Halcyon. When you think of that word, what do you think of? Well, there's obviously it has connotations to, to Greek mythology um, and um, the, it's a sanctuary. So in Greek mythology, it, became, it becomes a sanctuary that uh, two lovers who are killed by the gods go and they live, they live in a, uh, in, you know, as halcyons, which are actually birds. Um, so I think it's a, you know, it's a sense of sanctuary. And it's also a, a word that to me evokes uh, nostalgia, you know, halcyon days, whether those halcyon days, you know, ever did really exist or if they only existed in our imaginations. The, your 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 book on uh, Afghanistan Fifth Act was built around um, uh, classical antiquity, or certainly the legends or the discourse of it. In a way, this book and all your fictional work is a kind of sixth act in your life, isn't it? After war, yes, sir. I mean, certainly so. It's it's definitely been my next act, or. Um... You know, as Fitzgerald said, or as Scott Fitzgerald said, right, there are no second acts in American life. So was he entirely wrong, I, though? I mean, that it, usually when that quote comes out, people are always saying he was completely wrong. Uh, 
I guess it'll be to be, to be determined. I'm trying, I'm trying to make my second act. So I'm doing it and I'm doing it for these books. But can you, I mean, do you believe that, which is something we just discussed that you can never really escape. I mean, isn't that the point of the book and the point of American history is we're always trying one kind of resurrection oh, yeah. or another. Well, we're a country that's built on reinvention. I mean, fundamentally, so much of sort of the, the prospect or value proposition of America um, for, for so many who came here was, you know, that whoever you were, wherever you came from, you come here and you're able to be someone new. You are able to be resurrected um, with a new identity, a new name, however, however, however you define it. Um, so I think that is that process of reinvention, resurrection is something that um, just Americans tend to understand. Um, but, you know, you an individual can never escape their past um, and nations can never escape their past. And um, yes, we see that in the book. It's a theme of the book. Do you think resurrection, if, if this technology was actually perfected or made realizable, would actually be healthy if Americans could resurrect their supposed heroes. We had um, a guy on the show recently who described Jefferson, for example, as the quintessential arsehole. Do you think that um, if Americans could actually experience the ordinariness of their heroes from Jefferson, maybe even Lincoln, FDR, well, that we would think a little bit more realistic, we Americans would think more realistically about history? Well, I think as in one of life's great truisms, you know, never meet your heroes because they'll inevitably disappoint you. So I, I think that probably holds true. Um, and, you know, to, 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 to bring out another kind of truism is, you know, there's a great quote by Kafka, which is um, the meaning of life is that it ends, that a, that a life without an ending is a life in some ways without meaning. And, you know, in Halcyon, when you meet Robert Abelson, this man has been resurrected, you know, he, he's married to his much younger wife. And um, early on in the book, you discover that her life might be coming to an end. And the question is posed whether or not she wants to undergo the same treatment and process that Abelson has gone through. Um, and that becomes a big question in the book, what her what her ultimate decision is. And we start to see the tale uh, of how these resurrected people, um, you know, how they struggle to function, struggle to integrate into society. So I think that. Um, you know, resurrection and reinvention is not always um, as uh, beneficial as it seems. It's complex. It's a kind of revenge. It would certainly be a revenge on Kafka to bring him back to life, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think it would. <laughs> uh, f finally, Elliot, who, who, I mean, if we could, who would we like to bring back? Who could you, if, if this technology suddenly became realizable, who, who do you think we, we should bring back to life to help? us get beyond this rage-induced country, which is even more rageful in 2023 as it, as it was in your novel in 2004? You know, I, uh, I think if this technology came back, I think the people, the people who we would all want to resurrect would probably be, you know, someone who was close to us, who, who we lost. It wouldn't be any grand celebrity you know when i think of the people i would like to sit down with who aren't around anymore it's 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 not anyone famous or notable or any any great thinkers and i think that um ultimately you know how we escape you know this rage on we that we're all living in and existing in. i don't think that we can look to anyone except for ourselves to do that so um i don't believe that if we brought back you know pick your hero Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Martin Luther King. I don't think they've got some secret sauce 
to uh, to get us out of the, uh, the the dilemma that we're in in the society. You know, we need to we need to do that ourselves. But I don't have I don't have a, a thirty second solution for you. Uh, just a, a diagnosis of the problem. And oh, I hope yeah. that I was, if looking, you're, you I was know, looking for that earlier. I, was I know you are. Well, if you you know maybe I, your next like, book. If, you, if you read yeah if you if you read Halcyon, I think it's uh, it might not give you all the solutions, but it, it's a fun uh, it's a fun puzzle of uh, of a book that might get you thinking. It's definitely a fun puzzle. And, and, and finally, finally, Elliot, um, h- how do you avoid being rageful? You always seem to have been on the show before. I've always been impressed with your your calmness, your ability to detach yourself from history. Is that an experience of being on the front lines, do you think? Once you've done that, everything else seems rather dull? I think it's an experience of, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm glad you experienced me that way. Um, perspective, maybe. Um, and, uh, you know, we're all, we're all in this together. And I think we have to have the ability to disagree with one another uh, and, still, and still love each other and, you know, and not judge one another. Um, so, you know, I hope, we can, I hope we can figure out a way to generate more of that, more, for lack of a better word, just empathy. Um, and I, I get that from reading. I try to write the types of books that I like to read. The books that I like to read always, you know, take me into somebody else's shoes and, and challenge me a little bit.